0: Henry Kissinger, and American Power. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Professor Tom Schwartz. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me on the program.
0: Thomas Schwartz is a history professor at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He is author of the book Henry Kissinger and American Power, a Political Biography. As of this recording, Henry Kissinger is still alive at age 97. I must say, when I first heard of this as a project, that was a fact I I had to say to myself, Henry Kissinger, he he is still alive, isn't he? And he is.
1: He is indeed. In fact, uh, only about a month or a month and a half ago, he did a... uh, um, a column for the Wall Street Journal on the impact of the pandemic on international relations. And he has been um, quoted by a number of people in terms of the current controversies with China, saying that we are in the foothills of a new Cold War. So he is still someone consulted and talked about and who still gives interviews.
0: Now, you told, I thought, a very interesting story in your book. When you were writing your book, or maybe about to write it, you went to see Kissinger and you told him it was going to be a concise uh, biography, and I don't know if he took offense at that, but he had an interesting rejoinder.
1: Yes. He said, well, you will leave things out. And uh, that is correct. um, That in the end, um, the book, of course, turned out to be longer than I had expected, um, and it took me much longer. I went to see Kissinger more toward the beginning of the project to tell him what I was doing, and uh, the book, in a way, uh, really changed over time. I, I thought I would be writing something of a more intellectual biography, a bit like um, uh, the book that Barry uh, Gouin just recently released on, uh, called The Inevitability of Tragedy about Kissinger, uh, but I ended up looking more at Kissinger as a political figure, uh, which is one of the reasons for the subtitle, and examining how he made foreign policy, not just in a way the ideas that drove him.
0: And, and one of the audiences you're writing for, you state in your, in your book that you are writing this book in part for your own college students or your college students at uh, Vanderbilt who don't know Kissinger
1: well that is that is really the case now that uh, we if you're a certain age and now it's probably in your 60s if you're a certain age, you well remember who Henry Kissinger was, and in fact, probably even people a little bit younger than 60s still know because he was such a dominating figure, the most admired American in various surveys in the 1970s. But my students have very little uh, sense of who Henry Kissinger was, or what he did, or uh, even his involvements. Um, so I have found myself both explaining and and talking about this project with a group of students, particularly over the last ten. 15 years who really had no idea um what i was or the person i was talking about and why he was so significant
0: let let me ask you to uh maybe we can go through a little thumbnail sketch of how kissinger got uh to be such a a powerful important figure he was born in germany he and his family were orthodox jews and they emigrated i mean they i mean it wasn't just a matter of we'll take a (laughs)
1: or whatever uh, to America. I mean,
0: things were not very good for them then.
1: They were refugees in a sense, um, although they left before the worst of the persecution took place. Uh, Kissinger's mother, uh, who was a very strong figure, had a sense that things were going downhill. His father had been fired from his job right after the Nazis came to power. Uh, Kissinger's mother um, uh, sought out uh, some of the just, uh, some of the relatives they had, both in England and in the United States, and they were able to get to the United States in 1938 when Kissinger was 15 years old.
0: And they lived in New York City, right? First the Bronx, mm-hmm. then Manhattan?
1: They lived on Washington Heights in Manhattan. That's where they moved in. That was a uh, German-Jewish enclave. Uh, it even got the nickname, which was terribly ironic, given that it was German-Jewish, of the Fourth Reich, it was, a very, it's a very, it was a very German area of upper Manhattan, and uh, now it's, it's mostly Latin and, and uh, other immigrant groups. But at that time, it was almost like they went from one German area to another, but in the United States.
0: Do you suppose that's why he kept his accent? I mean, because he kind of carried that accent with him and among people who were also speaking uh, German or Amer- English, as he did.
1: Well, yes and no. That's one of those interesting questions about Kissinger, because his younger brother, who's only younger by about a year, has no discernible accent at all. And uh, the the argument the brother makes, which is a sort of sly joke, is that uh, the reason he has no accent is because he's the Kissinger who listens. And uh, the the idea being that Kissinger, um, uh, uh, famously much more egocentric, uh, his older brother. But I think it's it's partly also language. People will tell you that language acquisition and, and hearing accents and that is something around the teenage years that can be changed or not changed. And so Kissinger has always had a a distinctive German accent.
0: Now, I I gather that Kissinger led, I don't know if it was a sheltered life, but it was sort of a cloistered life in a way, even when he came to America, until he was, uh, uh, I believe he was drafted into the American army.
1: Yes. Yeah, he's part of this larger, in a way, I was trying in a way to both talk about him individually, but he was also part of a larger uh, change that happened. And that was the the draft that brought in millions of Americans, including many, many immigrants, um, and Americanized them into the American Army brought him in in June of 1943. And he was both drafted and then became a citizen at that time. And that would be a big part of, of why his career would be so different from what I think his expectations were when he was younger.
0: And they sent him at, first to a school, but then he when it was in the infantry and he ended up in the Battle of the Bulge but he he really proved his worth to the army when they, I don't know if it just dawned on them that, gee, this guy really speaks German well. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. No. The army, the army gradually realized that they needed a lot of German speakers and people who understood Germany, and you know, who could be loyal uh, to the American cause. And I think there were no none more loyal than German Jews uh, in helping them in in going into Germany. And so Kissinger later provided a uh, joined the counterintelligence, and so was important in both uh, helping to establish military government in Germany and then also managing to ferret out Nazis and and the rest uh, when the United you know, States tried to uh, denazify Germany.
0: And he earned a bronze star. What Mm -hmm. what was the circumstance of that?
1: Circumstance there was when um, he was able to round up and um, capture a number of Gestapo figures, uh, which he often joked about in the sense that um, he simply put an ad in the paper calling for people uh, with uh, police experience and all of these former Gestapo people um, uh, applied for it. It's sort of a joke about German about the German the the nature of the German character at the time but I think it was much more I mean Kissinger was a skilled figure he knew what he was doing and uh um uh he also had I think a considerable bravery uh, um as well in that um, uh during the before the war ended he was of course very vulnerable had he been captured um to be even treated uh, summarily executed like several American Jews were
0: When he comes out of the army or mm-hmm. well, I know one point I went to ask you about I think it's in the army and then in years later he sort of distances himself uh, from being an Orthodox Jew
1: yes he uh, uh, evidently did lose his faith uh, this is this is something I mentioned it's not a, a central issue and this is much more uh, explored by Kissinger's official biographer uh, Neil Ferguson but in his letters and the rest he expresses skepticism and he did drift from um, his American from his Jewish Uh, beliefs, Um, even though he never stopped recognizing and certainly maintained and understood himself as a Jew, he did uh, move away from his parents' uh, beliefs, and that was a source of some uh, tension within his family, Um, and that Mm -hmm. certainly comes out in the letters and other materials from that time.
0: And after World War II, he ends up at Harvard as, Mm -hmm. as kind of a star student and a very ambitious one.
1: He does. Although I don't think he entered necessarily as a star. He worked extraordinarily hard. He um, <laughs> developed a relationship um, with uh, uh, a uh, a, uh, a Harvard government professor um, uh, by the name of, uh, and I'm blanking on it now, um, William Randall uh, William um, L- William Randall Elliot. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sorry about that. That's a, uh, one of those uh, I should have mentioned. Sure. But Elliot was a, a prima donna in the Harvard Government Department, and. Eliot saw tremendous potential in Kissinger, and Kissinger wrote one of the longest uh, undergraduate honors theses in Harvard's history, uh, which led to a rule called the Kissinger Rule limiting length of, of undergraduate theses on the meaning of history. So he, he proved himself and then was um, brought into the doctoral program and would remain at Harvard for the next 18 years.
0: And can you explain his transition from uh, academe to um Government service, really, mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. something like that i I get the impression or get to the the point I might maybe mm-hmm. try to make is it seems to me he was better at dealing with government officials, up to and including Richard Nixon or Nelson Rockefeller, than he was fitting in in academia
1: very much so, very much so. I think from a fairly early point, he was frustrated with academia. Uh, even though he was successful at it, and even though he was quite uh, uh, quite a, a a successful both teacher and scholar, I think he was frustrated by the sense that he wanted to be actually involved in government and Elliot um, his mentor, had done government service in uh, World War two had gone to Washington frequently, and Harvard inculcated this sense of also, having a lot of people who, um, uh, a lot of scholars who did do government work either as consultants or part time in some manner, but he got very interested in that, and um, he met Nelson Rockefeller. He was recommended to Nelson Rockefeller, and Nelson Rockefeller is another one of those figures that a lot of people don't remember. But in the 1950s, he was an up-and-coming star, a liberal Republican in New York who had served in the Eisenhower administration and then would run for governor of New York, and was always considered a possible presidential candidate. Rockefeller and Kissinger hit it off. Um, They were very different people, but Rockefeller greatly admired Kissinger's intellect. Kissinger admired the the sort of public service ethic that he saw embodied in Rockefeller. And he attached himself a bit to that star and uh, became uh, sort of a a consultant to Rockefeller. But then he also entered both the uh, Kennedy and the Johnson administration's part-time consultants. uh, One has to remember here that foreign policy in this period, was considered, at least in part, much more nonpartisan. So it was possible to be a Republican working in a Democratic administration or a Democrat working for a Republican much more than it would be today.
0: And it seems to me he was able to kind of leverage his importance to people like Rockefeller or the Kennedys, Mm and ultimately Nixon and Ford, uh, through what he did at Harvard, I mean, mm-hmm. he, he didn't he bring in a lot of European intellectuals who would, uh, and important people who would come to Harvard to study.
1: Um, yes, he he ran. Um, this is something that started even when he was a graduate student. He ran something called the Harvard uh, Summer School uh, Institute, which brought um, prominent young Europeans at first, and then sp- expanded to Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and around the world. Um in the Middle East, and he would bring young, promising both academics um, uh, political leaders, journalists, other figures over to Harvard for a summer school class that Kissinger would run and He did this almost the entire period he was at Harvard and made all sorts of connections and uh was able to um uh, i think make. Uh, uh, also uh, established the sort of notion of the you might call we now we now might refer to this as soft power, the power of Mm -hmm. sort of uh, showing America at its best, uh, you might say, at a Harvard summer school class where they learned about various aspects of American government and politics and the rest. And uh, that was certainly a big part of uh, one of the activities he was engaged in before he entered government.
0: We're talking with Professor Thomas Schwartz, at Vanderbilt University. He's author of the book, Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography. You earned a degree at Harvard. Mm -hmm. When you were there, was Kissinger still important or well-remembered, or was he there, perhaps?
1: No, he wasn't. Um, uh, He did not return to Harvard after his government service. There's a lot of stories, different stories about that. I I don't. I, I honestly don't know the full story on what happened there. My sense was that Harvard, he had alienated. He had gotten into some disputes. There was a point in 1970 where a number of Harvard professors. Came down to Washington to criticize the Nixon invasion of Cambodia and met with Kissinger. And Kissinger saw that um, as a almost a type of threat to his position, and uh, that uh, served to cause a certain alienation. And Kissinger, after he left government, he remained a presence on the Harvard campus in the sense that he had many people who had worked with him. I studied with. Uh, uh, a number of them, Guido Goldman, who had been one of his students, um, was in the political science department. Uh, uh, Alan Brinkley at the time, who was there, um, was a friend, uh, the son of David Brinkley, the newscaster, had met and dealt with Kissinger socially. So I did know, and my advisor had known Kissinger at that time, although they were not as friendly or close. So I, I did recognize the Kissinger presence at Harvard, um, even if though he wasn't physically there.
0: And, well, he became... National Security Advisor to Richard Nixon in 1969, ultimately became U.S. Secretary of State in 1973. How did that happen?
1: Well, his appointment as National Security Advisor is something of a funny story in that Nixon, um, after the election, called him down. Uh, Even though Kissinger had been a prominent supporter of Rockefeller, Kissinger had made contact with the Nixon campaign and so was known to the Nixon campaign. There's a lot of controversy about whether he, what sort of role he played in the 1968 election. But nevertheless, uh, Kissinger was someone known as a Republican foreign policy figure. Kissinger, uh, Nixon called him down. They had a long talk. But Nixon didn't offer him a job. And uh, when John Mitchell, uh, Nixon's aide, called Kissinger a week later and said, well, have you decided, Uh, Kissinger said, on what? And then John Mitchell said, oh, no, he didn't do it. And then went back to Nixon and told him he didn't offer him the job. And um, Nixon then offered him the job of national security advisor, which was the uh, sort of coordination of foreign policy within the government. And basically um, uh, choosing Kissinger to carry out out his policies. Um, the national security advisor is appointed by the president, can be fired by the president, unlike the secretary of state who goes through Congress. And so it's a very different type of It's a personal loyalty. And I think Nixon recognized in Kissinger someone who saw the world as he did and would be an effective uh, Uh, administrator of foreign policy as Nixon wanted it done, and he had Nixon had some reservations about the State Department and the rest of the bureaucracy, and wanted in some ways to circumvent traditional Washington Mm -hmm. decision-making, and he saw in Kissinger the perfect uh, figure for that. Um, How Kissinger then became Secretary of State is a little different because that was during Watergate when, in effect, um, Nixon appointed Kissinger as Secretary of State in part to hopefully salvage his presidency since Kissinger was so much more popular than Nixon at the time. And Nixon thought that having him as Secretary of State would help him. You uh,
0: stake out a middle ground for your book. I mean, there are people who hate Kissinger. Absolutely. People who think he's a genius. Let me (sighs) ask you about his the signature things he was involved in mm-hmm. ending the Vietnam war. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that a, well, what was his role in that? And was it, uh, was he evil or was he good?
1: Well, obviously, uh, you know, anytime you talk about the Vietnam war, you're, you're walking into a lot of controversy on any of the issues Kissinger's role in that is he did favor negotiations, um, partly because he would conduct them, and he conducted secret negotiations with the North Vietnamese. Um, He, I think, did hope for some type of settlement that would effectively get the United States out of Vietnam and avoid the damage that would come when I I think Kissinger recognized the communists would ultimately take power, Um, He thought they might do it more gradually than they ended up doing it, um, in in effect, uh, through military conquest. But I think he wanted to extract the United States from Vietnam in a way that somehow would prevent it from damaging other aspects of American foreign policy. And so I think his behavior in that and his conduct of the negotiations, while there are some questions about uh, some of the ways in which he presented the issues to the American people, I think in the end there wasn't... He didn't have as many choices on that as many people believe. Given, mm. um, I think, the beliefs of his president as well as, I would argue, most Americans at the time. Even though in retrospect, many do now see the war as a horrible mistake, it would be would have been harder to politically to accomplish a uh, immediate withdrawal than than people today might recognize.
0: And he was awarded a Nobel Peace Nobel Prize, Peace Prize. For, yes. for this.
1: Yeah. No, he was. It was recognized at the time. It was thought a brilliant settlement, and uh, there is no question that I think uh, many admired um, the type of, of of solution, even though it was very flawed and had all sorts of weaknesses. They admired him for sticking to it and getting some sort of settlement. But obviously, um, the end result of the war was a very uh, a tragic, and I think he came to recognize that and certainly still acknowledges that tragedy.
0: I, I think sometimes Kissinger, or people have called this his trifecta, the Vietnam mm-hmm. War ending, and then Russia and China. China, he right. Pr- promo- well, well, let's start with China. You, that's mm-hmm. probably the most dramatic. He sort of orchestrated the opening of China?
1: No, I would not argue that. Um, In effect, Richard Nixon was the one who really had the initiative there, who recognized that there might be a possibility. I think Nixon, all criticism uh, understood about him, ultimately also had a sort of ruthless uh, intelligence. And one of those was to recognize that what was going on between the Soviet Union and China, where they had actually fought border clashes and that they were actually at each other's throats, offered an opportunity for the United States. And so I think this was one of Nixon's ideas. Now, Kissinger would prove absolutely instrumental in this, uh, but Kissinger was not, I think, the person who initially proposed it or pushed it. Um, he did though, once he was converted to the idea that this was possible, he then was an enthusiastic proponent and then carried out the secret negotiations that led to Nixon's uh, historic visit in February of 1972.
0: Kissinger also worked on detente with the yes. Soviet Union, or Russia. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. In that, And uh, that I think it was much more mutual with nixon that they both recognized and i think this is in defense of kissinger and 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 i acknowledge that there's a great deal of controversy about him in defense of kissinger one of his priorities was to lessen the danger of nuclear war And I think in this, Kissinger was more than willing to go along um, and to work with Nixon and handled the very intricate details of the strategic arms limitation talks that ultimately did um, uh, crystallize in the treaty that the United States and the Soviet Union signed in May of 1972, which was the first real arms limitation agreement of the uh, Cold War and really lessened the, the tensions and everything else connected with um, in the world, and, and you know, one has to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close we came to nuclear war and the possible consequences of that. But that the, the, this was, I think, a contribution of Kissinger's.
0: Kissinger was there at the very end of Nixon's
1: presidency, right? He prayed oh, with him or something like that. Well, that that's a that was at the time a very controversial thing. Um, uh, you know, there the The scene was described early on by woodward and bernstein in in one of their books. Um, Kissinger took an awful lot of criticism about that, partly because as an orthodox Jew. Uh, kneeling to pray was sort of seen as a final sort of act of subservience to Nixon. But Kissinger has defended that as something that, given the circumstances, the tragedy of the Nixon presidency, as he saw it, how Nixon had sort of self-destructed, that uh, it was uh, appropriate. But yes, uh, Kissinger, the irony of it is that Nixon built up Kissinger's reputation and position and ended up, when he resigned, sending that letter to the Secretary of State, who was Henry Kissinger, his very creation.
0: And after Nixon, he mm-hmm. served Ford as, as Secretary of State. That's and right. And things went from good to bad, didn't they?
1: Well, you know, Gerald Ford had a difficult situation. I mean, he, he uh, came into office at a time of economic stagflation, uh, high oil prices. This was the real period when the post war boom um, had uh, really disappeared. Uh, And uh, the 70s economic problems were acute during this time, and Ford had inherited all of that. Um, He pardoned Nixon, which was controversial, um, although nowadays is seen as a very uh, forward-looking step, but did hurt. And yes, um, uh, a lot of things happened uh, when Nixon. Uh, one of the first things that was was that the uh, Vietnamese communists recognized that Ford would not retaliate militarily if they sent their army into South Vietnam, and and that was an immediate one of the immediate things that happened. Uh, I think Ford should be given credit for trying to keep uh, and and maintain relations on a sort of balanced approach. And Kissinger played a crucial role in that. Ford deferred to Kissinger on foreign policy. But yes, things were uh, things were difficult. Um, but Ford came very close to winning. Uh, people forget that now. Uh, only a few thousand votes and he would have won. You know, he was not as unsuccessful as sometimes people project.
0: When Kissinger was the Secretary of State, did he ignore the State Department?
1: Oh, no. No. Um, once he transitioned over to the state department he actually Led the State Department fairly successfully. He appointed a number of people who later would go on to quite successful careers. So it, it was really, Kissinger is one of these people who's very successful in whatever job you put him in. And as National Security Advisor, he did ignore the State Department because that's what Nixon wanted him to do and uh, what his job was. But when he became Secretary of State, he did try to nurture the State Department and uh, increase its influence. And to a certain extent, um, there were, he did have, uh, Uh, divisions with some of the groups within the State Department in various regional bureaus. But I think on the whole, his uh, attitude toward the State Department um, when he became secretary was far more respectful of its prerogatives than he had been when he was national security advisor.
0: And Jimmy Carter lasted for one term. Did Kissinger play a role in subsequent Republican administrations, Reagan, Bush and
1: Bush? He played a role all the way through as an advisor, but in part because of his very dominating uh, presence in the Nixon and Ford years, uh, Reagan um, was particularly cautious about actually bringing him in. And in fact, um, although Reagan certainly considered it, um, there were too many uh, more conservative Republicans who saw Kissinger as uh, Kissinger's detente policy as having been too conciliatory toward the Soviets, but it was also a, almost a question of optics that if you bring Henry Kissinger in, he dominates the presence and the, he reduces or diminishes the president. And so Reagan, although he did talk with Kissinger quite frequently, much more than many people recognize on issues like the Middle East and the Soviet Union and China, um, largely did the only formal position Kissinger had was he headed up a commission on Central American issues in 1983 and 84 that issued a report on the crisis in El Salvador. But that was about it. And then Bush, after Reagan was in, also kept Kissinger at something of a distance, even though he appointed a number of people who were very close to Kissinger, including Brent Scowcroft and Lawrence Eagleberger. Uh, So, no, Kissinger would not serve formally in government. He was appointed Mm -hmm. by uh, the son, George Bush the the Jr., as head of the 9-11 Commission, but he resigned within two weeks of that because he didn't want to disclose some Mm -hmm. of his financial ties.
0: What does he think of Donald Trump? He's spoken with Trump, correct? Mm -hmm.
1: He's spoken with Trump, but he has been very—he has has not been openly critical. Um, Certainly, reading some of his speeches— Uh, particularly some things he gave when he recently received a reward or an award, a European award, the Tocqueville award, you recognize in there that Kissinger thinks that Trump has been too dismissive of American alliances and and on other issues. But Kissinger has preserved a certain amount of access. Uh, Jared Kushner, uh, Trump's son-in-law, quite likes Henry Kissinger and has talked to him quite a bit. And so Kissinger has always been interested in still having access to power, um, even though, of course, uh, he was he was probably closer and, and uh, supported Hillary Clinton in uh, 2016, um, even though he was not public about it, um, it, it. It's kind of an interesting aspect of his uh, uh, attempt to really maintain a, a certain degree of influence in Washington.
0: Thomas Schwartz is a history professor at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He is author of the book Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.